The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour program here on X-Ray FM. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. On today's show, we'll be listening in with a conversation that Phil Bussey had with Chris Coleman of Portland Center Stage to find out about their current season, as well as specifics about one of their latest shows that just launched, Astoria. First up, though, we have a segment that comes to us from the Media Institute's Summer Documentary Program. Every year, the Media Institute hosts college students from around the country for a multi-week intensive training course in the production of documentary radio and video pieces. We'll now be listening to a segment that comes to us from two of 2016's student producers and graduates of the summer documentary program. Here's a piece from North Bennett and Lindsay Smith. <laughs> That's the interesting thing about the clowns is we were trying to find ways to behave as terribly as possible and get paid for it and save the world. I'm Dingo Dismal. Yeah, I'm just a clown. Just a regular, everyday clown. It was a clown house. We moved in our clown organization, who were part activists, part forest defenders, and part punk rock band that was clown themed. We made it a focus to draw people. We went to every single protest we could go to. We went and got involved with everything we could do, plus all the band stuff we were doing. We were around all these folks. There was always flyers. Then they'd come to our house, and sometimes we'd just set something weird up. And uh, part of it was to make enough scene for them to look at us, and then we could give them our propaganda for the stuff we had been studying. And we did a lot of stuff to take care of the neighborhood, like uh, we had a free bike shop. And as we were doing it, we would started getting a lot of donations. People would bring their bikes, people would bring a bunch of food, anything to keep us going. It was worth it to them. So we had a whole lot of support at that clown house. And then it got so big that we could no longer afford to live there. We got classed out right away. The whole character of the, the neighborhood changed. It started homogenizing. And now when I go down Alberta Street, I don't recognize most of it. The clowns are the gentrification marines. The first one's into the neighborhood that's a bad neighborhood. And the first one's out of the neighborhood because they can't afford to be there. In the end, they took off to start another clown house without me. And I just got to be a homeless guy that used to have a big giant organization. What am I going to do? I was a waitress, I was an artist, and Dingo literally was like, you should quit your job and do stuff with me. And she did it. She quit her job. She became a clown, and she became a better clown than me. And that started a whole new life that I like to call the Golden Age. My name is Oliver Beer. I was the new chapter. <laughs> well, I am an entertainer. I am a clown. I am a balloonist. 
I am kind of like a fairy, kind of like a doll, and uh, I'm a wife as well. She invented me into the more crowd-friendly dingo. I'm still a clown. I'm still doing all the stuff I used to do just for kids now instead of for uh, people in nightclubs. The person that dingo came out of from the clown house, I got to have all the best parts of that. So now we're clowns in cafes and we're doing the same stuff that we did before at the clown house but in a different way. Poverty is a bitch. Poverty really, like, it stresses you out so much that you sometimes you can't see past the end of your nose. <laughs> I guarantee you, we've had many times where we're like, we can't do this anymore. We're on food stamps. We barely have any money. I don't even know how we're going to pay for rent next month. You want to keep everything together. But you can't. And then somehow we get through it. I definitely don't want to be known as the gentrification guy. My kind of clown is doing a secular monk thing, but we don't have to. We could spend most of our time in a car being clowns and all of the burbs where all the money is, and we'd be swimming in it. But that's, that's not what this community needs. We're here because the people want us to be here. Right now, our main goal is to stay Portlanders because all of the prices are going up just like they always have. I've never left a house because I wanted to. I've always been priced out of a house. So we're trying to figure out how to get a TV show or something that would get us a living wage so we can guarantee that we would stay here. goal is to make a name for ourselves and to build our fan base and our popularity and if they keep putting money in our jar then we can keep coming back. Thank you so much kids. Why did I stay here in Portland? I love Dingo and I love this town. It's a great town to be a clown. It's a great town to be a clown. It's a great town to be a clown. Where is it? Portland! We bring artificial sunshine to people in our city when you entertain an entire crowd and they're like, they're cheering for you, but they're like looking at each other and they're having such a great time. It's the best thing you could imagine to make somebody smile. Ready for fun? See bugs around here. Are you still your clothes in a box. I don't care the color of your socks. Baby, we're in Portland. Portland, Portland Puddle Town. Yeah! Thanks again to North Bennett and Lindsay Smith for that piece that we just heard from the Media Institute's summer documentary program. If you'd like to find out more about the summer documentary program and get information about how students can apply for the 2017 program, visit the website at mediamakingchange.org. Now we turn to our conversation with Chris Coleman from Portland Center Stage. Here's Phil Bussey.
This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am so happy to be joined in the studio today uh, with Chris Coleman, who's the Artistic Director for Portland Center Stage. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm excited to talk both about the season and then more generally about Portland Center Stage. I mean, it's had such a big role in the last 15, 20 years in Portland. But let's let's start with the the here and now. You guys have a really eclectic season. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors, Hold These Truths. Uh, I mean, even right there, if you just thin slice it, those two are very different plays. Who curates this? Is this your job? That's my job, Phil. Um, <laughs> I, I get the last say. I mean, we have a fantastic team. We, we have a great artistic team that helps me kind of find possibilities and then uh, really wonderful senior management that helps me figure out what we can afford and what we can actually um, produce with the labor that we have. And, and you know, eclectic, I love that word because from um, the time that I started my little theater in Atlanta, which was 1988, you know, one of the things that I really loved doing was setting very different things next to each other, very different experiences, very different stories next to each other. Because I felt like um, it helped you see each of them more clearly. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, so that is, um, you know, we're not always completely successful in, in being able to do that. But that's one of the goals is that it is, um, you know, it's not just a mishmash of whatever comes to mind. It's really kind of thoughtfully saying, well, what would be interesting set next to each other? So, And, and then you also have plays that awfully... Uh, obviously complement each other. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk more about Astoria, mm -hmm. which is an amazing adaptation of just a fantastic book by Peter Stark. Uh, and then you have Oregon Trail. Mm -hmm. And I mean, those, those two, I mean, they, they fit together incredibly well. I mean, historically, thematically, do they fit together? Um, or, or setting... Oh, that's a very interesting... Yeah, yes, in some ways. There's very, very different pieces. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we kind of got on to this question of um, Northwest stories, looking more um, proactively for Northwest stories, uh, because we, we uh, got a, a grant last year from the Wallace Foundation in New York to specifically deepen and broaden our audience between the ages of 25 and 40. And one of the stats that we learned uh, about in our audience was that that demographic tended to come uh, in, in greater numbers when we were doing something that had a, a particular tie into this region. And so we thought, well, let's kind of pay attention to that. Let's maybe kind of try to find more choices along those lines. And then we just happened to kind of, I was working on the Astoria idea, and then we happened to find a couple of others that linked in. And the Oregon Trail, um, you know, is by this young woman, and it's about the computer game, you know, it's about the, which I knew nothing about. Um, and it, it is, you know, it's about a young woman whose life is kind of purposeless. She can't figure out what to do with her life and gets obsessed with the absolute purposefulness of trying to survive on the trail. So it's hilarious, but also kind of a touching. Um, so there are some threads that link it to Astoria. Right, but also completely different. I mean, yeah. Astoria, uh, the book and, and what will be the world premiere, right? Yeah, absolutely. Adaptation of Astoria. I mean, th there's nothing virtual about that. Those guys are taking real hits from <clears throat> from from uh, bear attacks from the British, from just the elements. I mean, that is uh, one of the grittiest 
books I've ever read. Oh, absolutely, and that was, uh, and, and and if you haven't read it, it it's um, the the premise is 1810. Um, John Jacob Astor funds two expeditions, one over land, one by sea, to establish a trading post at the mouth of the Columbia. And this is two years after Lewis and Clark returned, and his goal was to create a. Um, a monopoly, a global monopoly in the fur trade, which was the biggest commodity in North America at the time. I didn't know it. but um, And so Lewis and Clark expedition, two people died. In this expedition, out of 140, 62 died, two went insane. And, and like you, as I'm reading this thing, it is just the most harrowing, unbelievable survival story I had ever read. And I figured that most of the people in this region would already know it. And so when I and I got a little obsessed with it. And so when I would start telling people about it, I realized that, no, Oregonians did not know this chapter of our history. Um, and, and we could easily if, if the events in that story had shifted, you know, slightly, we could easily be sitting here in Canada today. We could actually be sitting in Russian territory today. You know, so it is a pretty staggering um, tale of survival. Yeah. And it and it also brings up. I mean, I didn't know all these things. I thought John Day was some some just brave, wonderful explorer. Oh, no, totally. John Day went nuts. Not not as a, I don't totally, want to have a spoiler here. No, but. he totally loses his his marbles. And and what's really fascinating is that that character was the way uh, the author Peter Stark got intrigued with this whole adventure because he was doing he was researching a book about the least inhabited places on the planet. And apparently, Eastern Oregon qualifies. And he was on a road trip, and he was just exploring possibilities, and he was running out of gas, and he was looking for a place to spend the night. He ends up in John Day, Oregon. They have this little interpretive center, so he's, he goes, and he's trying to figure out, who is this dude, John Day? You know, and he, 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 he reads that, you know, he was the hunter from Virginia, tall and lanky, and that he came over on this thing called the Aster Expedition. He's like, what the heck is the Aster Expedition? And that was the first thread, you know. That's fantastic. No, I, I really like that you guys are doing Northwest Stories and, and that you're not um, you're not doing Portlandia ones, although you guys did do. Yeah, yeah. People's a, Republic of Portland, yeah. A, a, a few years ago, yeah. but I, I like that it's, it's a mix of not just uh, contemporary, but some of the historical ones. Um, talk to me a little bit more about Jaw as well. That's that's also in some ways trying to pull ideas out of the place where we are. Well, and Jaw stands for Just Add Water, and it's our new play festival that happens every summer, and I think we're in year 18 this year. And so we, we read probably 300 new plays that are submitted to us and pick four to six that we want to try to invest in developing. And then we'll put, we'll cast uh, the shows and bring professional actors and directors and dramaturgs into town for two weeks. And the author gets a chance to work on it, change it, rewrite it, and then put it up in front of an audience. And then oftentimes we will produce, you know, something that comes out of that festival. And then many, many, I think 62 projects that have come out of that festival have been produced elsewhere uh, around the country, around the world. Um, So it's been pretty... Uh, it's been a great launching pad for us, um, but it's also been really uh, a contributor to the national field. And 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 these three hundred plays are these yeah. these are playwrights are wannabe playwrights from from anywhere. Yeah, they're from all over the country and the world, and and so they'll and we'll get a submission. Most of the time, they come from an agent. Um, sometimes they'll come from the the author themselves, 
or um, from an, a colleague at another theater. And then we read them blind. And, and what that means is we don't know the author. We don't know the name of the um, play. And that's really an effort to not get hypnotized by resume. And so that, you know, a, a, a kid who's writing his first play in grad school is on the same um, footing as somebody who's won a Pulitzer Prize. It's really about the story. Um, and and I, I want to, we're going to take our first, first musical break here, yeah. but I, to, to set it up and to sort of carry along that idea of things, you guys nurturing uh, new ideas and, and new plays, and, and also that idea of, of coming out of Portland. Yeah. Blitz and Trapper. Blitz and Trapper. So so this track is um, from their album Fur, and it's called Fur. The song's called Fur. And um, I didn't know Blitz and Trapper, and we were trying to find um, a project for the spring, and, and we, um, my production manager, Liam, actually went to college with their drummer, Brian, and he said, you know, what about us? You know, I, I think the guys in Blitz and Trapper are trying to, they want to do something narrative. They want to do something long form. Um, what if we had a conversation with them about creating a piece together? And I'm like, who are they? <laughs> and um, so I started listening to their music. I really, really loved the music. And um, and we invited them over and started having conversations. And we're creating this crazy piece with them. It's great. Well, let's take a listen. I mean, even within the song, there's there's an obvious narrative within this one song. Let's take a listen to Blitz and Trapper's Fur. Yeah, when I was only 17 I could hear the angels whispering So I drove into the woods And wandered aimlessly about Until I heard my mother shouting through the fog It turned out to be the howling of a dog or a wolf to be exact The sound sent shivers down my back But I was drawn into the pack And before long They allowed me to join in and sing their song So from the cliffs and higher still Yeah, we would gladly get our fill Howling endlessly and shrilly at the dawn and I lost the taste for judging right from wrong For my flesh had turned to fur Yeah, and my thoughts they surely were Turned to instinct and obedience to God You can wear your fur like a river on fire But you better be sure If you're making God a liar I'm a rattlesnake, babe I'm like fuel on fire So if you're gonna get made Don't be afraid of what you Just like me So I stood and looked about I brushed the leaves off of my snout And then I heard my mother shouting through the trees He 
should have seen that girl go shaky at the knees So I took her by the arm, we settled down upon a farm And raised our children up as gently as you please Nonprofit Hour. I'm joined today uh, by Chris Coleman, who is the artistic director for Portland Center Stage. That was Blitz and Trapper's song "Fur," which is uh, explain this a bit. So it's going to become a stage production. Well, not that song, but they're they're writing. Um, Eric Early, who's their writer and lead singer, uh, has written a new cycle of songs that uh, has a narrative thread within them, and then he's creating a narrative thread around it. So there'll be spoken dialogue, you know, in, in the piece as well. And, and, you know, one of the things that I learned when we sat down with those guys is the um, the founders of Blitz and Trapper grew up in a small rural town uh, outside of Salem in Oregon. And if you listen to enough of their songs, there are threads in there that are stories about the kids who've been left behind. And, and the way I've heard Eric describe it is, you know, think about Portland is booming economically and the, the you know, the regional um, area is booming. And... There's a lot of uh, towns around the state that are still really struggling economically. And what happens uh, to the kids that are stuck there, you know, that don't get out, don't move on. And um, and, and so that that is one of his interests. And, and the piece, I don't know where it is right now, but when, last I heard it was, uh, you know, a guy and a girl who were on the run before the lights go out, some kind of huge environmental disaster is impending on the horizon you know what i mean um and and the band will be on stage performing um during the show and that comes up this spring oh uh, that's exciting yeah um and you you a portland center stage uh well and we can talk more generally about the whole history of it but you're the first one to bring musicals to portland center stage at least that's that's I think that may be right. I think yeah, I I think that is right. I think the first one was um my first season here which was 2000. And and I you know, I did not realize that Portland Center Stage is uh an offshoot from Oregon Shakespeare Festival yep. in Ashland. Yep. And that's a that's a, a very curious odd story because the city built, you know, what's now um Antoinette Hatfield Hall, uh, the Newmark Theater. They built that building and um, didn't have a an anchor tenant for for that 900 seat beautiful theater, 
And they talked to a couple of other um, theater companies in town. I think Storefront Theater that's no longer with us. And I can't remember, maybe Tiger's Heart. And um, they realized that the economics of that space would eat those companies alive and likely destroy them. And so they reached out to Oregon Shakespeare Festival and asked them if they would consider coming up and doing a satellite. It was very controversial in Ashland. It only passed their board by one vote. And the artistic director didn't want to do it because he felt it would dilute their, their mission. And uh, But they came up in 1988 and had were here for five years. They lost a bunch of money every year. And, uh, and then they kind of said, okay, that was a good experiment for us. We're going home. And um, they made what, what had been the advisory board for the local theater into the official board. And in 1994, P- PCS became an independent organization. And, and I mean, it's obviously Portland's a very different place now than it was then oh my gosh. Uh, in terms of capacity uh, to, to support uh, an arts organization the size of, size of Portland Center Stage. Um, a few other things, though, happened uh, in the history of Portland Center Stage and that are significant in terms of really the broad development of the city and, and obviously the armory building is mm-hmm. one of those. Absolutely. And just talk a little bit about how did that come about and obviously the armory building has been uh, a cornerstone for the Pearl District. Um, the You know, it's, it's a super interesting story, so I'll try to be brief. Um, you know, the building had been built in 1891 for the National Guard to drill to protect the good citizens of Portland from a potential uprising among the Chinese immigrant population. Apparently, we had the largest Chinese population on the West Coast at the time. And it seems kind of humorous now, but, you know. And, and that building was the, you know, it was the largest gathering space in the city until the 20s. So, you know, four presidents spoke there and Chicago Symphony played there, opera companies played there. It had a really kind of very colorful history. And um, we, when I interviewed for the job, um, in fact, everybody who interviewed for the job said, you're going to have to move out of the new mark long term if you want to be successful from both an artistic standpoint and a financial standpoint because you needed something that was more uh, right-sized for this community. It was a little more intimate and that, you know, there was two spaces and you could kind of curate the whole experience. And so Bob Gerding, who was the developer who developed the the um, brewery blocks, came to me, I guess, in fall 2002 and said, um, do you think we could could convert that into a theater because they had a lease actually with LA Fitness. They had signed a lease with LA Fitness and he was kind of heartsick that this uh, iconic building was going to not have more of a spirited use. And I said, I absolutely think we can. And we started talking to architects and then a long complicated four or five years later, uh, we had, we had raised 30, eight and a half million dollars and renovated the building and and um, put two theaters in there and lobby space and so now one point about 1.4 million people have seen a show in the 10 years we've been in there 350,000 kids have seen a show Um, so it's been almost 600,000 people have come into the building for something other than a theater performance so and it's I mean it's a really cool space too in terms of of how the building was put together it's it's lead certified am yeah, I correct lead leads platinum which is leadership in energy and environmental design and it's the highest designation you can get kind of in in terms of sustainable design we were the 15th building in the world that had achieved it the first historic venue and the first arts venue that had achieved it and and 
which is amazing. I mean, it's just there's there's so many features. You took me on a walking tour probably about ten years ago. Oh my gosh! Of of the building and you know and the 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 heat ducts are there to heat the water pipes and it's you know it's 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 meant to it's a building that's meant to be sustainable um, both culturally and as as well as environmentally. The neighborhoods change though there and then Portland as well. How does that affect you? Uh, as Portland Center Stage is, does that make your job easier? There's more people here that are that are wanting more of a city city life, uh, or is it more difficult because there are, there are a couple dozen high or a dozen high quality theater groups out there that are competing. I think all of those things are true. Uh, there are there are more people moving to this city. And they are escaping. They're moving from more expensive cities, um, so they they have more disposable income. The downside of that is, as we all know, it's uh, our rents and our housing prices are going up, and what that means is it's really challenging for our staff and for the artists who work in the city to kind of uh, live comfortably. Um, and, and yes, there's more competition for uh, the theatrical, the person who's looking for a theatrical experience in the city. There are more uh, better quality options than there were 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Um, so, and the media landscape has dramatically changed. You know, 15 years ago, it was really meaningful to place a half page or quarter page ad in the Oregonian that would that would actually affect your sales right and then not not as much anymore not so much yeah um let's take another music break uh Ethel Waters singing uh Stormy Waters and and why why did you choose that song Chris uh Stormy Weather Stormy Weather um we're doing a show we're doing a based on the life of Ethel Waters called His Eyes on the Sparrow in January down in the studio and I think most um most of us, if you know Ethel Waters, what you know is her gospel career. And what you don't know is that she was probably the first significant jazz vocalist in America. And and um, so, so I thought, well, rather than playing one of her gospel tunes, let's hear kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of her jazz vo- voice. Well, let's, let's take a listen. Don't know why There's no sun up in the sky Stormy weather Since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Life is bad Just can't get my poor self together I'm weary all the time The time So weary all the time When he went away the blues walked in and met me 
If he stays away, old rocking chair will get me. All I do is pray the Lord above will let me walk in the sun once more. Can go on. All I have in life is gone, stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together. Raining all the time Keeps raining all the time I walk around heavy hearted and sad Night comes around and I'm still feeling bad Rain pouring down blinding every hope I have If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour from the Media Institute for Social Change on X-Ray FM. To become a supporting member of the Media Institute and find out more about their work, you can visit mediamakingchange.org. Members receive annual benefits and support programs such as the Nonprofit Hour and their summer documentary program. The Nonprofit Hour is also brought to you in part by generous support from Pacific Continental Bank and BusinessWorks. Find out more at therightbank.com or businessworkspdx.com. We also receive support from Living Room Realty, who are committed to living and doing business with meaning. And Ristretto Roasters, locally owned and small batch roasted since 2005. Four cafes in urban Portland and available at local markets and online. More info at rrpdx.com. That was Ethel Waters singing Stormy Weather, which is uh, highlighting the production of His Eyes on the Sparrow, which is, that's a spring production for you? It's, uh, I think it opens early February, yeah. Okay. I like to think of February as, as the spring. That keeps me sane. You keep, you keep thinking that way <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> this is the Nonprofit Hour. We are talking with Chris Coleman, who is the Artistic Director for Portland Center Stage. I want to talk a little bit, before the musical break, we were talking some about how uh, changing Portland, the cultural landscape, uh, has affected Portland Center Stage and how you guys have kept your footing or changed mm-hmm. your footing. I want to talk about the actors a little bit. Where, mm-hmm. where are they coming from? Well, about... Fifty percent of the actors you'll see on our stage in the course of a season are from Portland. So we always start looking here. And there's a very uh, there's a strong but small um, talent pool here. If we don't find the right person for the role here, we most often go to New York. We have a casting director there. Uh, we sometimes look in Seattle. 
uh, for Astoria, there are four Native American actors that are all based in L.A. Um, but uh, most often we'll go to New York. Is it getting easier to find actors here in Portland over the last 15 years? I mean, you obviously have the, the success of some shows like Grimm, which mm-hmm. uh, Portland Center Stage did use two of the actors mm-hmm. from for, for a play couple years ago yeah and then and then uh the show we're closing this season with constellations we'll have silas Weir mitchell from Grimm in it again yeah excellent and, and, <clears throat> and so is is it getting easier are there more actors that are being able to, that, that, that can make a living in portland and that that you can draw from or is have you seen that talent pool change over the 15 years i think there are more and um and maybe there's a little more depth in that talent pool what is um what's tricky is let's see there's not a ton of um ethnic depth you know bench depth um so if you're trying to do a show with an all asian cast or um an all latino cast it it's more challenging um if you're doing a show where there is a lot of dancing so if we're doing a musical that's, that requires really good singing and no dancing with white people, uh, there's a pretty good talent pool here, That, to be blunt. Um, if you're looking for really strong dancer, singer, actors, you're looking somewhere else. And and uh, on the other side of, I don't know how you say it, other side of the curtain, um, who's coming to the shows? Is, is that changing? I, I, Earlier, you talked about uh, an emphasis to have Northwest stories to attract the the twenty five to forty year old demographic, or to to uh, expand and uh, that group that's coming. But who is coming to Portland Center Stage? Well, I mean, I think if you depend on what night you come, mm-hmm. um, if you come early in the run with with our subscribers, I mean, our subscriber base is still, um, you know, a little more mature than me. I turned fifty five this year. Um, and, um, you know, and pretty white, uh, like Portland, though it is getting, it is about 15 years, the average age is about 15 years younger than it was when I got here 16 years ago. And, um, but if you come late in the run, um, especially on a weekend night, it, it starts to skew considerably younger and depending on the show. So like when I came to see Sweeney Todd, the final weekend, it was like, Oh my gosh, this is like date night. It was like, you know, <laughs> 30, 30 year old couples, you know, out for uh, a night of, you know, blood and mayhem. Sure, um, I mean, well, Sweeney Todd was, you know, a, a, a Quentin Tarantino would have made that had he been around. Right. That time. Right. Um, so, so we, we, one of the reasons we focused on trying to um, increase the audience between 25 and 40s because we've had some success in that area. Um, we have we have had some success in um, developing relationships with the African-American audience in particular over the last couple of years, maybe five years, because we've done several productions um, by African-American authors or that related to uh, themes coming out of the African-American community. Um, so that's been rewarding the show we're doing right now in the studio hold these truths is about a japanese american who fought the internment order during world war ii and so we've had some you know some nice um attendance from the 
Asian community here. So so making some progress, but uh, lots of room to go. It's got to be a really interesting dance for you mm -hmm. in terms of curating <clears throat> what shows you're going to bring in and, and, and knowing who your audience is. Because uh -huh. there certainly has to be uh, a limit to which you can push and pull, you know, about how funky you're going to get because you may lose uh, someone who is a 65, 70-year-old a theater goer who's expecting something more conventional, mm -hmm. you know. But then, if you don't go too funky, you're going to lose the uh, the 25 year old. That's right, and well, and it's it's interesting because that tension is not necessarily about age. Um, you know, some of my some of the people who push hardest for you to go progressive are, you know, uh, are mature and very successful. It just depends on taste, and and one of the things. Uh, you know, the I mentioned the Wallace grant that we got last year. Um, one of the things it allowed us to do was some market research, and we were able to spend time with uh, folks between 25 and 40 who are currently attending, those who had attended and stopped coming, and then those who had never come before. And the last group was the most interesting <clears throat> because when we talked to them about what would motivate them to come, the titles... Um, they were less drawn toward uh, world premieres that they knew nothing about, unless it had like unless it was like um, what was the show we did last year? Um, had sex in the title, it had the word sex in the title, <laughs> you know, or unless it was a kind of a very titillating title. They gravitated toward the the most famous titles, mm -hmm. um, and it was super interesting drilling down on that because. You think about it. If you're a 30 year old who comes occasionally, you may, you know, you go to other arts events. Maybe you haven't come to PCS before, but you're interested in the notion. Um, you think <clears throat> it's going to be too expensive for you. It's not necessarily, but it is going to be more than going to see a movie. You know, so it is maybe a bigger financial investment than uh, you'd make on a on a regular Friday night, unless you're going to, you know, a concert, a big concert. But the, you think about it, if you're going to a big concert, you already know the music, you already know the brand, and you have some sense of what the uh, experience is going to give you back. <clears throat> so if you're coming to the theater and it's already feeling like it's going to be, you know, it's going to cost you just a little bit more, um, part of the thing that mitigates the risk emotionally is knowing. Oh, it's, at least I know the title. At least I know the, the that author, you know, Streetcar Named Desire. Okay, so I have some sense the experience is going to be uh, worth it. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, well, I mean, taste taste is funny that way, whether we're talking about food or music or culture. I mean, it, it, you're right. To, to expand and take that next step, whether it's from not knowing much and doing something or if, or if it's, you know, you, you are there... Uh, most people only take baby steps and it and becomes interesting for something like Portland Center Stage because at a certain point, you need people to trust you as a brand, as a curating brand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and it's it's because, interesting that you say that because we are, over the next two months, you're going to see a bunch of billboards around the city that are about trying to imprint a little bit more not come see this show, but this is the experience that you could get if you uh, showed up at the Armory, you know, on Saturday night. Um, so, 
Let's uh, let's let's round out this uh, conversation. It's been really nice to have you in in the studio. But I want to talk a little bit more about you. Okay. Uh, you you've been there for <clears throat> almost twenty years, which I mean, really, it's that's the bulk of Portland Center Stage's history. Uh, which is shocking. I, I, I've been there. So this is year seventeen, and the theater is twenty eight years old. So, yeah, I I yeah. Did you expect? Oh, hell no, Phil. (laughs) You know, if you had told me when I was 20 that I'm going to spend 17 years of my life in Portland, Oregon, I would say, where's that? Um, Or at this particular theater? No, I I just, no. It's um, And it's so weird because it doesn't feel like a long time on this end of it um, because it's still... I'm, I, it's still so stimulating. It's still so interesting. There's still such interesting problems to try to grapple with. And like working on the Astoria Project feels like I'm just, you know, writing a whole new chapter of my own kind of artistic journey. It's, yeah, go ahead. How, 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 is, uh, how is the Astoria Project different than some of the other... Because I'm writing it. Um, and, and I've you know, I've written one other piece here, but it was an adaptation of a Shakespeare. And, and this is, uh, oh my God, it's like the most impossible thing to try to put on stage um, to try to find the physical theatrical vocabulary for, you know, a ship going around Cape Horn and these guys climbing up the mountain and, you know, Hell's Canyon in the middle of the winter. It's just impossible. But that's what's so delicious about it because you have to find a a, a theatrical solution that is uniquely um, relevant to that medium so for me, it has um, been really challenging and thrilling to actually try to figure that out. Uh, okay, yeah. So that's that. You said something about twenty years. Anyway, <laughs> I forgot what no, the question it's, it's, was. No, it's it's uh, you know you had come here from Atlanta, yeah, and you had co-founded um, the the Actors Express, Actors yeah. Express in Atlanta, yeah, and and you jump into something that wasn't necessarily yours, right? At first, which is which is already a change in direction, right? Um, you know, do you feel like you have made Portland Center Stage yours? I mean, or what? How has it been not being the founder, but having to, but but having really uh, set the direction? Well, I, I would say that I I feel like it took me seven years to own it, you know, in a sense, uh, or for the the community to to you know, for us to figure out how to dance together. And, and, and that was really moving into the new building, moving into the new building. Um, suddenly people seem to understand our new personality. Um, and so, so we would get in at the new mark, we'd get, if we did something really edgy, we would get all this pushback and all these cranky letters you know we could do something equally edgy in the armory and we just got nothing it was like somehow it all made sense um so uh you know and and the huge difference is um portland center stage is the big main state mainstream theater in this community and so it's a it has a political um role People have a vested interest in its its direction, its future, its viability, and and so they you hear about it a lot more. You know what I mean? They they're going to tell you their opinions, and that's awesome. But it was new when I got here. I was like, holy cow! People <laughs> care about this, and I've pissed them off. You know, which is you know that that can be a good problem artistically to have. Totally. 
Totally, they're engaged. Let's. Uh, uh, what was? Do you remember the first play that you attended? Ever. Ever. How did or how how did yes. you get interested in the theater? Well, because my, my mom trained as an actor, and um, she, you know my parents were from South Georgia, tiny town in South Georgia. Their dads were state patrolmen, and um, when my dad asked her to marry him, he had one more year of college, and he said, "I know you want to be an actress, so if you'll marry me and let me finish school, we can go to New York in a year." Well, in the year she was pregnant. So they stayed in Atlanta. So she never really pursued that dream. Um, but that I grew up kind of with that, her stories, and we do stuff at church, you know, with her. So I was always kind of around the medium. And uh, and the first play that I saw was with her, and it was at the Civic Center in Atlanta, and it was Fiddler on the Roof starring Leonard Nimoy as wow. Tevye. Wow. <laughs> and I have no sense of whether it was good or not, and I don't know. I don't remember, you know, falling in love with it, but it was... Uh, I liked the medium. I liked trying to tell stories that mattered to people. Chris Coleman, thank you for coming in and talking to us today. Uh, Chris Coleman is the artistic director for Portland Center Stage. They have a very exciting season <clears throat> coming up this year. Uh, let's have uh, one of the songs from Astoria to take us out. Awesome. This is Merevenant, and it is a classic voyageur song.
us to the end of the Nonprofit Hour program for this week. We'd like to thank our guests this week, Chris Coleman of Portland Center Stage, as well as summer documentary program graduates North Bennett and Lindsay Smith for their radio piece that we started out the show with. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle at Nonprofit Hour and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page or free podcasts on the Apple iTunes Store. If you'd like to make a comment or suggestion about an organization we should profile on a future show, please send an email to nph at mediamakingchange.org.